to the Sojourn Church podcast. We are glad you are here, and thanks for listening. As a church, we exist to exalt and enjoy the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things, equip the saints, and extend the gospel to all people by reproducing disciples and churches for the glory of God. More information about the life and mission of Sojourn Church can be found at SojournTulsa.org. That's S-O-J-O-U-R-N Tulsa.org. We are going to be um, continuing through chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. So if you want to open your Bible or turn your device to that, and we'll also have the um, uh, scriptures up on the screen there. And um, starting next week, we're going to go into um, this kind of focus on Advent. And uh, so usually what churches would do in an Advent season is you go and um, go into the scriptures, either Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, um, or maybe into Isaiah or different places in the Old Testament. And you'd find a specific um, scripture reference that, that speaks of God's plan of sending his son to the earth for salvation of souls, or you'd go into the birth story of Jesus. Now, some churches, they may spend one Sunday, maybe the Sunday before Christmas or the Sunday after Christmas, just focusing on that. Uh, through the ages, uh, through the centuries, um, the Advent has been a bigger thing. So if you grew up in a denominational church or non-denominational church, um, sometimes they may have focused um, specifically on just one Sunday doing that. Uh, but through the history of the church, um, it's been celebrated as, as more of a, a bigger scope and a bigger picture. And so um, we're going to, instead of just try to um, uh, pick out just one section on, you know, from one of the gospel stories, either the first couple of chapters of Matthew or first couple of chapters of um, Luke or, or John, um, we're going we're gonna to take a, a big picture view the first week. So we're going to actually spend um, three weeks kind of using what we're in in 2 Corinthians to take a bigger scope view of what God is doing, the reason the why of Advent, the reason of his coming. So uh, so next week we're going to look at just um, God's big 50,000 foot view, um, God's redemptive um, plan of recreation. So he's recreating what he started in Eden. He's creating a new Eden. And so that's what he's been doing. He's recreating us. And so um, he's recreating a people for his own glory who would be, um, like I said earlier, they would see him as you are our God and God would be able to say, this is my people. Now, now new people, a redeemed people with no sin. Um, so just thinking through that idea of recreation, God's redemptive plan. So a 50,000 foot view. And so we're going to stay in this second Corinthians five, 17 through 21 for these next few weeks. But the second week is going to be focusing specifically on reconciliation in verses 18 through 20. And then the third week looking specifically at justification. And so thinking through what does that mean? So the coming of Jesus the first time and what he has accomplished for us, and we're going to see that, and that, that's not detouring, but I'm going to add some scriptures in there on, do you see why the coming was so important? And do you see why also, that we, we kind of leave this part off, the great news of he's coming again. So if you're not a believer, you need to think through that. There is some fear of the Lord that should be there. There is some holy, righteous fear that should be there. That, that's representative. Jesus spoke of that all the time. Um, at the same time, there is hope if you're not a believer. 
If you're a believer, we should be not only thankful for his coming the first time, but we should be anticipating, like all the New Testament letters are, are screaming. Uh, most of the New Testament letters, if you step back, usually what's happening in some of the letters, it's addressing a crowd of believers who thought he's coming back in this first generation. Like he's coming back before 100 AD. That's what most of the, the people thought. So And so Jesus had some words that were a little confusing. You know, he, he said some words there that people like, you know, but before um, this generation kind of passes away, the son of Man will come. And so it's like, oh, this is coming soon. So there was actually a couple of places um, where that's addressed and where um, people were thinking before we die off, this generation that was alive when Jesus was alive, before we die off, he's coming back again. And that, I mean, that would be understandable. If, if you were part of the crowd that, that saw him lift off those original um, disciples, man, um, that, that's understandable thinking if we could see that, like, we would probably be thinking, he's coming back any day. And so we're going to be looking at, at that whole picture of why Jesus came. And then on that last Sunday, uh, we're going to be looking at the incarnation specifically and, and adoration. Um, looking at the incarnation and trying to see where our hearts are at. Are, are our hearts just kind of bored with the story? Or are we in true adoration of this king who's come? Are we a kingdom people? And so that's what we'll be looking at um, these next few weeks. So today we're going to be in 11 through 16. And so if you want to read with me um, chapter 5, um, like I said, for the next three or four weeks, we're going to be looking at specifically 17 through 21. Um, but in chapter 5, um, verses 11 through 15 today. Um, so... Here is verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it's known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for, for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So Father, we do thank you for your word. Would you guide us in truth, Holy Spirit? Would you teach us truths and remove fallacies? Would you remove from our eyes even not only false teachings, but just false philosophies, false pictures of what Christianity is supposed to be, false pictures of what this American version of Jesus is supposed to be, what this American version of Christianity, what the American version of the church has sometimes become? Would you give us yourself? In your name we pray, amen. So um, as we look at this, remember Paul's been reminding them, so we're going back 
catching up with the, the chapter 5, chapters 3, 4, and 5, all building together. Um, Paul has been in a little bit of this self-defense mode because of these super apostles, these people who have come in and influenced the church of Corinth, some, some people who have come in and taken control and been influenced. And it's a church with all kinds of messes. Remember, they had all kinds of uh, sinful problems going on. Um, a church that most of us, if we were honest, we probably would visit about one time and hear or see some of the stuff and we'd be like, no, I, I'm out of here. But, but look, we're out, but look, God is in. So, so just remember that in this idea of let's, let's, let's be grace-oriented. Let's, let's be graceful with people. Notice we would check out this church and we would go, no. Like, did you see those people arguing? That, that guy's suing that other guy. Did you see that? I think that guy was flirting with that other guy's wife. Like, this is crazy. We're out. And God is completely in going, man, that, that's my church. Watch what I can do with them. Watch what I can do. So just notice that we kind of have that mindset. And so um, Paul's been reminding them of this beautiful mystery of how God is renewing all things. And so last week we saw how he was reminding them that he's renewing our, per- our perishable bodies to turn them into imperishable, bo- imperishable bodies. Um, that they'd be resurrected bodies following after the first one that was reborn Christ. And so I don't, when I say the word reborn, don't, don't get confused in the same way that when it says that, that Christ was the firstborn, uh, that's not saying that he was, um, that he was um, the, the first one that was ever born. It doesn't mean that Christ had a beginning. He had a humanly beginning, but he did not have a beginning that was separated from the Trinity. So there's a confusion there for some people. Jesus always existed. So in case you're coming from a background that thinks Jesus Jesus was born, and that was his start. That, that's not true. He was in the Genesis account. He was, when, when, when the flood hit, Jesus was in the Spirit. They were all right there, the Father, the Son, the Spirit. They're all involved in the creation account. They're all involved of the judgment, so it's not the old angry, bearded, white, angry version of God the Father in the Old Testament and the new, cool, crew-cut Jesus that you know was hip and grew a beard and like all graceful. Jesus was involved in any of the destruction and any of the, the suffering and any of the things that went on in the Old Testament, any of the discipline, Jesus was there. So don't think of him just grace 2.0. He, he's, he was all, it was loving discipline that God was doing, God the Trinity. So Paul's reminding them that you're going to follow after Jesus who was resurrected. And so the God who has prepared us for this very thing, that's what he's doing. As we live here on earth, we're away from the Lord. We saw that last week, but we would make it our aim to please him. Whether we're here on this earth or whether we're away and with the Lord, um, we would make it our aim to please him. So so in our life on this earth, we're trying to please him. Uh, And he's been building this case that God had been working out this plan of redemption. Um, And and what's crazy about this, the scandalous part of this, as we've seen, is that God would transform former enemies— and turn them into worshipers and ambassadors. And so that's what he's getting into. He's, he's reminding them, if the change is happening to you, actually your new identity, so that's 517, uh, the old has passed away, the new has come, your new identity in Christ, you're an ambassador for Christ. God is reconciling the world through Christ, and you have been one who's been given this message of grace Shouldn't you be giving it to others? That's why he's wanting to refocus their minds, lift their eyes up on that uh, 
chapter 3, verse 18. Let, let's focus and behold Christ. We'll become more transformed like him the more we gaze and stare at him. Stop gazing and staring at other things. Stop gazing and staring at your circumstances. Stop gazing and staring at these people who have changed the message about Christ. You've got to have a purified version of Christ to be transformed in that. Two sections that's in this chapter 5, which I think are, you could probably say, um, so you know how we, you could probably say that they um, encapsulate the whole Bible. So everyone thinks of John 3.16 as, you know, the, the verse that everyone thinks of that. That's kind of the Christian verse. I, I would probably submit uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 as a little more clearer on, on what, you know, God's love actually meant. Because for God so loved the world, um, that, that's, that's a beautiful thing. But, but as Americans, we go, well, of course he did. <laughs> Have you seen us? Look at us. Of course. We're not shocked that God loved us, but uh, John, or, uh, so 2 Corinthians 5, 21 brings up the scandalous act that, that he became sin in our place. He took on our sin, and so that, that's the, the beauty. And so there's two sections in chapter 5 that I think do a great job of encapsulating the whole Bible. And so uh, look in verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. That one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. All the Old Testament fulfilled and consummated in Christ. Paul says this, it all comes down to the central point that one has died to cover the sins of all those who would be redeemed. Then in, in verses um, 18 through 20 there, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So rebels turned into worshipers and reconcilers. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him. And we just don't think that's very shocking. We, we don't think that's very unique or rare. That, that's not something that is breathtaking to us, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So this very clear um, uh, message, be reconciled to Christ, this pleading for a response. And then verse 21, for our sake, the Father made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. The scandalous nature of that. So that in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. And so I love the beauty of literally, it's a very clear picture of that double substitution. I would say it's actually a triple substitution because it includes Advent, he's coming again, glorification. So you have there the, the, the picture of the, the first part of that substitution is Sankey, step back, you get to go free. You committed all the crimes, you're filthy, putrid, filled with sin. Sankey, you get to go free. You get no kind of sentence of wrath. Jesus stepped up and took your wrath. So there's the first substitution. But then he says, um, that we might become the righteousness of God. So the second substitution is I get, not only do I get to go free, no wrath, but I get the righteousness of Christ as if I lived according to God's law perfectly. 
I get all of his righteousness accredited to me. You need that, by the way, in heaven to live. You're going to need that. To live in a holy place, you're going to need holiness, and you didn't do it. You're going to need righteousness in a righteous place, and you didn't do it. That, that's what that verse says there in, in, in 21. Um, for, for our sake, he made him to be sin. So there's the penalty of wrath put on him. That's the first substitution. And the second substitution, um, that in him we become the righteousness of God. That's a crazy courtroom. And, and, and because of those two things, the third element, what I say is substituted to us, is glorification. Resurrected bodies, imperishable, imperishable bodies, that, that, that just like with Christ, a new body that, that is not going to face death or cancer or any of those pains anymore. So three beautiful things there. So notice what he's, as he's building this new identity in Christ about the depth and the beauty of God's salvation for them personally, but also it's God, God's redemptive plan spreading to the lost world through the redeemed church, his ambassadors, his image bearers. So let's look at this first thing. This, what I want you to see here is, and, and the, I don't have an uh, outline as far as points A, B, and C. I just want us to kind of flow through this. So the first thing in verses 11 through about 12, 11 and 12 there, um, what you persuade them with, because Paul's talking about persuading, what you persuade people with is what you keep them with. And Paul says that's either the fear of the Lord or it's fraud. And he's wanting the Corinthians to see there's some fraudulent teachers, and then there's us who have this conviction about the fear of the Lord. So notice what he says there in verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, and so that if you could put um, some quotations or uh, parentheses around the fear of the Lord, what is that? So that, that's a foundational conviction, knowing the fear of the Lord. What, what does Paul mean? Is, is, is he walking around, or are Christians supposed to walk around just waiting for God to smite them and just waiting for them when they make a mistake that God's just going to crush them? That's not what he means. It's an understanding of now that I've learned about my sin, I've, the Holy Spirit's opened my eyes to how much sin I have, how much I'm undeserving of God, yet he was so holy and righteous to a level I couldn't even imagine. He should have crushed us all. He should have brought judgment and death upon us all, but he didn't because of his grace. In that I had this fear of the Lord, a healthy fear. It doesn't mean, that again, that you're walking around just fearful, that he's always waiting to pounce and cause problems on your life. Um, and so Paul's saying, out of that fear of the Lord and understanding, that, that sets the style of ministry for Paul. If we were to, if we were to use a, a common word in our vernacular, um, style of ministry. Paul says, there's our style, the fear of the Lord. It, it, it's the foundational thing for us. That what sets the, the style of ministry. Um, this is what Paul's dealing with in this whole section. He's saying, this is our conviction. And, and from that fear of the Lord, we have this conviction that we're supposed to persuade others. And then notice he goes into this. Um, this is more of this self-defense language because you've got those super apostles that have come in and misled the church. He says, but what we are, so this is your very core identity, what we are is completely known to God. God, God knows our heart. God knows our conscience. And so remember, we're looking at this idea, what you persuade people with is what you keep people with. Now think through this. Paul had come in with the pure gospel and shared with them Jesus he, he, he was a, a weak, suffering sage that was crucified. And yet you're a culture that wants prominence, that wants status, that wants success, that wants riches. 
And it would be humbling of you to accept this word from God, that, that the message of the cross about humility and about suffering of this one who would bring salvation. And you accepted it, and the church was established, the church was planted, people were saved, people were baptized, but now after Paul and his crew left and went to other places, some people come in and took advantage of that. Did you know that there are people who want to use Christianity or the Bible even or our church settings to take advantage of people, to adulterate and to completely um, mislead people? It happens all the time. This is what Paul's dealing with. And Paul's saying, that's not what we did. Our style, our conviction, our, our, our foundation was the fear of the Lord. You should have the fear of the Lord, Corinthian church. What we are, our identity, is known to God. And I hope it's known also to your conscience. Because we're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you'd be able to answer those. Who's the those? Who are boasting about outward appearances and not about what's going on in the heart. So what you persuade people with is what you're going to keep them with. Is it the fear of the Lord? Or is it fraud? Remember Paul's first letter to the Corinthians? He brought this up and he stated that he would not be trying to use persuasion techniques in the proclamation of God's word. Um, they would simply proclaim the simple message of Christ and him crucified and trust God with his faithfulness to use the message. So look in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2. I've got it on the board there. Um, 1 through 5. This is Paul in the first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 2. And when I came to you, Corinthians, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. So let's stop right there. Why would he bring that up? I didn't come with lofty speech or wisdom. Because what was the culture? What was the culture of the people? That they valued that type of stuff. They valued people who could speak with eloquence. And so in their day, they didn't have Titan, you know, the, 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 the idol of this area of Tulsa, uh, where tens of thousands of people gather for our kids to play in these things. So it's a, if, it's a joke. If you're not old enough to have kids, Titan is this facility in Jinx, and it's just, it, it, it is a idol factory. And the idols are all under three feet tall. And so um, that just, it's just a place where like just tens of thousands of people gather and gather and gather because my kid's going to be this superstar. And so, and I'm, I'm joking there, but the, 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 the idols of the land at that time were what people thought and what people were able to communicate. And so the culture, they valued this idea of status, eloquence, pride, philosophy. That's what would draw a crowd. And Paul said, that's not what we're going to do. We're not going to use those type things to draw a crowd. That's not the end goal. In our day, I can't tell you how many meetings I've sat in, either conferences or in churches where the leadership meeting is asking the question, and this is not a satanic question, this is not a horribly evil question, well, where are the people at and what do they need? It's a good question. If you're shepherding a church, you go, where are people at? Where are their hearts at? What do they need? Now, that's a third or fourth or fifth question for me. I've already got what God says they need. I've already got what they need. I've got, I got the fix. I got the answer. The way you communicate it is huge, right? The way in which that you're able to get truth to people is, is very important. But if you go, I'm not asking the question, or I'm not looking at it like, what has God said? That's the first question. What has God said that we need? If you, if you lay that one down and you start with the first question, 
what would it take to get more people in here? What would it take to get more people to show up? So if you know the last 50 or 60 years, it was known as the church growth movement, the attractional church thing. And so, so that's why you know, people are kind of predicting some of these places that have the huge facility, you know, $25 million facility. And now after COVID, now they're kind of like wondering, how are we going to keep this up? Because we're at 40%, 50%. See, everyone's happy about 50 or 60%, but they're just going, man, how are we going to do this? And so some people are kind of predicting the next 20, 30 years, our kids will grow up with these huge, big buildings and they just don't know what they're going to do with them. What can you do with this place that seats 5,000 people and there's only 100 people now? So what do you do? And so, and I'm not, I'm not making a judgment on whether mega churches are bad or evil or wrong. or anything. I think God uses those things. But, but if that's the only goal, there's a difference there. And so what you win people with is what you keep them with. So if we could ask in our day, what draws a crowd? So, so what, what is our culture looking for? If their culture valued philosophy and eloquent speakers because they didn't have all these other things to entertain themselves, what, what does our culture value? What does our culture want? Because church leaders will go into this idea of, well, if that's what they want to keep them coming, we better give them that. What you win people with, you keep them with. Hey, God loves you and you're the apple of his eye. He is so concerned about you being so happy. God's reason for existing, the number one thing that God exists for, the reason Jesus died on the cross was so you could be happy. Doesn't that make you feel good? Doesn't that make you just feel, oh. And hey, if you'll work harder, if you'll give some more. Hey guys, we all pass those plates one more time. If, if you'll give some more, God is going to do some incredible things. You're going to be part of it. Did you hear that salesman pitch coming in? Look around, it works. He said, my, my message was not with plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit and of power. What happened? Look at your lives. You were saved. It's a miracle. Your, your dead souls were brought to life. It worked. So now look, after the church was planted, now false teachers had come in and they had changed the message. They had modified the message. So Paul's rejecting the idea of trying to use manipulation techniques or worldly persuasion. Um, notice why Paul resists that. It's so that their faith and their salvation would be legitimate. He says, um, it, so that it would not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So the things he's trusting is the power of God and the Spirit. And he says all that's based on, in, in 2 Corinthians four or 5, the fear of the Lord. So based on the fear of the Lord, we persuade people based on that. And let me ask you just to consider this. Is there any chance that we've lost our sense of awe? Our, we've lost our sense of the fear of the Lord. If we are a people redeemed, but not really ever in the habit of, of persuading others about Christ. Paul says, because of the backdrop, the foundation of our understanding of the fear of the Lord, that's why we persuade others. He became so amazing and captivating to us that naturally 
I'd want to persuade others. Is there any chance that in the American church, it's so much more about what was the worship set like? What was the, the light show like? What was, what was the, the, the building like? What was, what, did, the, did the preacher have three points that really connected and made me feel a certain? Is that, all right, so American Idol, and you know, you're, you're, America's got talent, like we have all this, this judgment and all these, hey, I'm evaluating, evaluate, I'm evaluating the service, I'm evaluating this, I'm evaluating those things. You're not even hearing the content sometimes. Read people's blogs. It, it, it's, it's all these evaluations. Like, did, did you hear what we said about loving your neighbor? Did you hear what you said about just loving the people in your small group? I know they're difficult. I know they're weird. That, that's what God did. He brought a whole bunch of weird people together and said, you're not going to just be best friends and everyone be exactly alike. There, there's the beauty of unity and diversity. It's beautiful. That, that this guy who's a surgeon making 1.2 million a year could love and treat the guy who's living in a hundred dollar a month apartment and, and bring him into his table and sit that, that you would have love for him. That's nuts. The world doesn't understand that. And the guy who's in poverty, who has a whole bunch of problems with the rich would go, man, I'm going to love that guy. I have all these stereotypes about what that guy's like. I can see by his car, by his clothes, I'm going to go and love him. And however he treats me, I'm still going to love him. Man, the world doesn't have an answer for that. And so that's what God wants to do in this process. Is there the chance that we've lost our fear of the Lord? Is there the chance that um, our sense of awe has been gone? Is there a truly visible biblical expectation on each believer, every disciple of Christ, um, that, that who's, who's experienced redemption? Is there a, a responsibility to share what God has done? Would it be more accurate to state it this way? Since we do not have much fear of the Lord, therefore we do not feel like we should persuade others. Since we don't have a great fear of the Lord, and not just the old-fashioned, well, you're dying going to hell. Your car may crash today. That's what I grew, I grew up in the whole generation. Every last three minutes of every church, every youth group thing, every youth camp, everything was, tonight some of you guys, you're going to be driving home in that church van. You're going to have a blowout. Your, your van's going to flip. You are going to die. Are you ready? And that was it, like every single time. And so you had to come down the aisle repeatedly. And so I grew up in that. For 50 or 60 years, on the question of what would draw a crowd, how do we measure this? What, what is success? Here, here's what the culture outside's lost world, what they're looking for, ease and convenience. Ease, convenience, and a self-fulfilled destiny or purpose. What you win people with is what you're going to keep them with. So if for four years, I tell people that God's only concern is you being happy and then after four years, we have a thousand people coming and go, hey, I'm glad you guys have come. I've got, I've got a new story. The new story is you're all pitiful and you all have wretched souls. Everyone leaves. So what you win people with, that message, you're going to have to keep feeding them those McDonald's French fries to keep them coming. And so churches have caught on to that. There's some huge mega churches that, that not, not just mega churches, movements so Willow Creek up in Chicago area, we had visited several times um, when we were in that area. And so um, just an incredible facility, incredible place. And so after 20 years, they recognize, and they would quote 20,000, 30,000 members, man, what if 
90% of our people don't understand the gospel and are not saved. Because you know what? We've got the repelling small group, people who love to go repelling off the side of cliffs, um, and they've never heard the gospel, but they've been here for 10 years. And we've got the group who loves kayaking, and we've got the group who you know, does maybe whatever else, little, so they made all these little niches, and they realize, man, 90% of our people probably aren't saved and aren't understanding the gospel, aren't even true believers 20 years in. But we've got a $150 million facility. And churches have copied and copied and copied and copied us. And we have the, the whole Willow Creek uh, affiliation, the whole Willow Creek movement. And it was based off of the church growth model. So um, that's that's measuring things differently than what Paul was saying. So look in verses 13 here, uh, 12 and 13. Paul's identity is his union with Christ. His approval is fixed. The temptation to base your value and authority on what you've produced will always be there, especially sometimes in churches for pastors. They're, they're valuing um, their, their own, or they're, they're measuring their own value by how many laughs they got or, or how interesting they can be or, or what, what stories. Note Paul's security and identity in Christ. What we are, it's known to God faithfulness to this message. God is going to be the one who brings the fruit. We can't manufacture or manipulate fruit. And so Paul is, is clearing to them, clarifying to them, this Christ and his cross. So this may be difficult to imagine, but there were people in Paul's times even, actually men who were supposed to be those who were clar- clarifying and identifying with Christ who were charged and called to preach God's word, but who had changed it. They, they saw personal advantage. They saw pride. They saw power. They saw influence. They saw riches as the goal instead of faithfully proclaiming God's word. It may be hard to imagine that guys would do that. Talents, charisma, attractive abilities, polished professionalism versus character and calling. So what makes a good leader of a church? Character and calling or charisma? Care for the flock and compassion or promotion of self and success? Competency in handling God's word or competent in entertaining and performing? So we've got a whole culture that, that, that is clearly biblically illiterate, doesn't understand the word, doesn't understand the need for the word even, so you're sick with something, even if you're, you're an immature infant believer, right? And so the goal is to get you to where you're eating good, healthy meat. And so inside the churches, not even knowing that I'm sick with something, even if, if I'm a believer, I need to grow. I'm malnourished. And the answer is God's word. But instead of giving you God's word, I'm telling you it's God's word, but it's three ways to win in a downsized economy. Or it's, it's a political agenda. Or it's, it's a, just a hate attack on something in the world. Instead of, no, here's what's going on in your heart. Because it's going on in my heart. And your only hope is the same Jesus in the cross that saved you initially. You better be just as in love with him today. You need him today. It's not to make you doubt salvation. It's just to make us consider the, the, the great glory of Jesus. Instead of the great glory of ourselves. So Paul's conscience is pure before God. He says, that's who we are. 
In verse 13, he says, if we are beside ourselves, and this means ecstatic experience, so think of Corinthian church, think of 1 Corinthians. What did they like on the spiritual gifts? They liked the crazy stuff. So if you've been, Jamie and I have been part of the, the, the extreme charismatic stuff. You've got people running around with the, the flyers and the, or the, the little uh, bedazzlers and stuff, and people screaming and people falling out. And so uh, we went to, the, one time while we were in Florida, we went down to, it was that, um, God, I forget the name of that, that revival that was going to Brownsville Revival. So we went and just checked it out. And so um, we were on a row, we were on a, a pew, and, and so we're sitting there. And so at the end, and, and, and man, we were lucky. We were really lucky. We got there, and surprise, they went to Acts chapter 2. So where fire comes down and tongues landed on everyone. So guess what? Here's a little side note. In Acts chapter 2, think of these two words. Is that descriptive of just the writer Luke? who's going, here's, I'm describing for you what happened. Or is it prescriptive? This must be prescribed to all believers. And so they read it as prescriptive, meaning all believers were expecting fire to come down and land. So everyone gathered, 3,000 people in that crowd, Tongues is about to hit this place. So guess what they did? They turned the lights out. So it gets funky in a church when you're at 3,000, there's this thing, and they turn the lights out. And then a flame, a, a torch flamethrower starts up at the front. Like, I was already getting there. Like, I'm, I'm pretty good with some weird stuff, but I was already going, like, when, when the lights go out in a room with 3,000 people and a guy with a flame thrower starts up at the front like I'm ready to start moving out towards the back and so people and people are screaming and you can just hear oh and it's just building up and of course you've got the keyboard guy going he's Bill riding that up and so like you, you get chill bumps no matter what you don't know if it's Satan or what but like at least you got chill bumps and so they go through and so we from this point on after this night we call I forget uh, the uh the bulldog, bulldog knots, what we call it. And so they literally went through, some of you have been a part of this, where they, the guys are walking through and they're just landing their hands on, on the, the head of the forehead of people and just plowing them over. And so um, they're just plowing through this crowd. And so we, if you stay in your row, then maybe the, the tongues of fire are not going to land on you. And so we took, took that safe route. Um, and maybe the, the spirit, the, the sin against the Holy Spirit that we missed out on. And so they, they were going through this, just plowing people over. And um, so then there's, there's, they also had holy laughter there. So that, that's a thing that started just in this last century that had never been seen before. And so they, they'd, they'd, they had kids walking around doing these laughing things, kind of cackling. And they were saying that was from the spirit, this supernatural gift. And so that's all going on. And so my friend, and Glenn is sitting next to me, and we're, now we're sitting, so we're standing up, turned around backwards on pews, just watching what's going on. No cell phone, so you can't video this stuff. And so, literally, the guy's coming up this aisle, and all of a sudden, Glenn's on the end of the aisle, and it's so great because the guy takes his left hand and he's, he's you know, casting out stuff in tongues and just grabs Glenn's stomach, just like, ah, in the name of Jesus, and starts into something. And so, and Glenn just freezes and locks up and he's looking at me like that, kind of like that, please save me, help me. And the guy's trying to like make him go down to the floor. And I did the good friend thing. I just like stepped another six inches away, just like, sorry, dude, you're out. And it's like, so the guy, Glenn doesn't go down. And so all that's happening. And so those type scenarios Paul's going, hey, you Corinthians, you love that type of setting. That's what's been going on. That's what the first, the first Corinthians letter was bringing up. You guys have some crazy stuff going on. I don't know if it can compete with Brownsville Revival, but that's what had been going on. And so all this stuff, Paul says, 
For if we are beside ourselves, and they understood that word in the Greek there to mean this ecstatic experience, that's what you guys love, right? You know what? If that seems that way for us, it's because of God. Not just because of you and not because of our own experience. But if we're in our right mind, meaning the truth of the gospel is their focus, it's for your sake. So, Notice what he goes to next. Out of that, verse 13, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. And here here he goes into a straight gospel expression, the central message. The love of Christ controls us. He was just now talking about the fear of the Lord is the foundational thing. The fear of the Lord is what would make me want to express these truths to you. And now the love of Christ compels us, controls us, because we've concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. Now, we know that's not talking about physical life, so it's talking about believers. So you've got you've to spend some time there, go and do some study on the word all. What does all in the Bible mean in specific verses? You may have some multiple intentions, people out there. So he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So what are people outside the church controlled by? Just think through. What are people outside of the church, what are they controlled by? Slowly drive around your neighborhood as you're leaving for church. Just think, oh, oh, instead of going to church, I'm not being mean to them or anything, but they feel like, hey, instead of giving God any time this week, they're flower beds. And the lights on their, 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 their Christmas lights up on the house. I love flower beds. I love Christmas lights. It doesn't mean that maybe they're going to a five o'clock service. So I, I don't know. But I'm just saying people that would live without God, what would, what would they say controls them? But what about inside the church? What are people inside the church controlled by? Paul says the love of Christ controls us. Are most Christians motivated by a fear of judgment? A fear of being wrong? a fear of making a mistake, or are they compelled by a deep appreciation of God's love for them? And I say that because Paul's making this very clear. Yes, don't, don't get me wrong, fear of the Lord. Not, not, not the type of fear where God's smushing us, right? He's just smushing us. Oh, I, I, I said a bad word. Oh, man, oh, I was angry in the elevator. Oh, he's smushing us. He's, he's killing. No, no, not, not that kind of fear of the Lord. He, he's a loving God. He's not the angry miser, Right? But now he's moved on to, for the love of Christ controls us. So in our camps sometimes, places that, and what I mean by our camps, places that place a priority on doctrine and, and bringing the word of God to, to, to bear and, and for bringing out truth, places that want to do that, a lot of times we're the people who live in this constant fear of just making a mistake. How about how you're raising your kids? What, what if you... Do something wrong. If you have to stop breastfeeding after two months and go to formula because there was an issue. Think through the, the logical conclusion of that. That kid may end up just really, really off. That kid may. So there's those things. Hey, the way that you make them sit at the table, the way that you let them do whatever. So you're, you're parenting. What, what about... Um, all these practical issues. Sometimes we're, we're so caught up on the fear of making a mistake, the fear of being wrong about something in our circles because we've elevated and we've put pride to knowledge. So knowledge points, we don't think about the practical outworking. We, we, we may be right, right on the knowledge point. We may be horrible on the practical outworking. So 
Jamie, my wife, she wakes up one morning, it's a Saturday, and she wakes up and I'm not there, and she finds this box. And it's like an $800 dress. Like my, my vehicle's not worth $800. So for her to open this box, and there's an $800 dress, and she sees it, and then these shoes that are like $500, and this matching purse. And then she walks into the kitchen, and there's $200 worth of roses and flowers. And it just says, dress in this. A limo will pick you up at five. And she's just like, this is crazy. Why am I being treated this way? And then I, she, the limo picks her up at five and goes to the, the finest restaurant in Tulsa with the most beautiful view. And we get there and she sits down at the table and there's sparkling wine. There's this feast of food. And she's going, what are you doing? We can't even afford this. And I just tell her, nothing matters. Money, nothing matters. You are everything to me. I love you so much. And she goes, why are you doing all this? If I had had the response of, well, I'm your husband, I'm supposed to. Do you see the difference there? Well, I was just felt like I was supposed to. I felt like I was a failure a whole bunch of other days. So this one day, I'm going to do a whole lot, but I'm supposed to. I'm your husband. Can you imagine the difference between those two things? One is complete, complete enraptured delight in who she is. One is a low duty. Well, I'm just supposed to. Think through your Christian life. Which motivates you most of the time? Fear of doing something wrong? Maybe breaking a rule on one of your lists? And, and we're a good crowd who has beyond Bible lists, right? The Bible gives freedom in this area. We had, our, we had a little bit of a list on top of that. God was a little bit loose there. God, you know, Jesus was a little bit loose, a little bit too graceful. I, I need to, to correct things and keep it online. So think through, are you doing things most of the time out of fear of doing something wrong or breaking a rule on the list? Are you motivated by God's overwhelming flood of grace towards you? So fear of judgment. So is it keeping all the rules because of my fear of judgment? Abstaining from temptation because of fear of judgment, fighting sinful fleshly desire because of my fear of judgment, or is it because of what Christ has done for me? I do these things. It's completely flipped because he knows your heart. The little scenario I just painted with me and Jamie, he would be Jamie in the story going, I know you just told me that you love me. I've seen that other 365 days. I know the other 10 years. Thanks for the roses. Thanks for the limo. Thanks for coming and showing up. Thanks for coming to group. Thanks for reading those books. It's selfish. You, you treasure yourself and the pride of knowledge. And Paul says, that's not me. The love of Christ controls us. So our crowds have to be careful with this. People tend to think that um, sometimes when I go into these things talking about this, that, that oh, so you're saying that, that uh, yeah, obedience doesn't matter. That, that just, it's just grace and God's love. No, no. The whole backdrop is the fear of the Lord. The Bible's clear on that. Those are the givens. But we're not a people who are very good at enjoying God's grace. 
Um, I'm suggesting more legalistic, rigid, list-keeping, knowledge, knowledge, knowledge. People don't know grace as an experience. They know it as an idea out there. Because we love being really, really good people. We love being really, really good rule keepers. And my list is much better than yours. And Paul says, the love of Christ... The love of Christ is controlling us. So I'm not trying to say, I'm not, not, not trying to say you should not have a healthy understanding and fear of judgment, fear of the Lord. That, that's all over the Old Testament. It's all over the, the New Testament. Uh, it affects our view of God. It affects everything that we feel in relation to God. Uh, but but this, this view of Christ's love for you, it affects our view of God also. It affects our guilt and shame triggers. It is not a bad thing in itself, fear of the Lord. It is our application of it as the predominant motivating factor. That's where it gets messy. So think through that, where you grew up. Rigid, rule-keeping, lists. Again, if, if your first thing when Sankey brings this up is like, it sounds like you're saying, just know you're, you're making a defense for those things. And I'm just saying, so it's like this. In football terms, hey, we, we, we've ran the ball 99 times, and we've never scored a touchdown. The first time we throw to the right, it's a 70-yard touchdown. I'm just asking, should we maybe try throwing a couple more times? Like 99 times in running, we haven't scored a touchdown. Run left, run left, run left, run left, run left. Law, law, law. Legalism, legalism, legalism. Knowledge, knowledge, knowledge. Obedience, obedience, obedience. I wonder what grace would feel like. I wonder what love of Christ controlling us would be like. So just know that Paul's going, hey, fear the Lord and the love of Christ. They're together. Not, they're not enemies. They're not separate from him. So um, the practicals, just quick fire answer, thinking through, um, just, just a good measurement for this. So why do you do evangelism? We're supposed to. Hey, Jamie. I'm supposed to. He knows our heart, doesn't he? And hey, we stink at it. We don't even do it for most of us. So how bad is it when he already knows that you don't love and treasure him that much and you don't share him because, man, I bet you have pictures on your phone of whatever that new object you bought for your house, new car, all those things. We do those things. We treasure those things and prize those things. And here's Jesus going, I see through the heart. You're Parenting decisions, the books you read, your views on sex, your views on marriage, your views on money, your views on Sabbath, your rules as a family. If I'm a person that's going through with emotions but not in love at a heart level, Jesus knows that and it reveals a lot that you're actually exalting self in what you view about yourself instead of exalting him and loving him. Our crowds don't see that. It's a huge blind spot sometimes. And Paul sat here saying, the love of Christ controls us because of him, because one has died. You're supposed to remember you died. You're supposed to remember you died. So what's controlling you? What, what, what's driving you? Why, why do you have your list? Maybe you need to clear your list and go back to, I'm in love with you. Would you give me what our list should be? Because I'm in love with you. I want to obey because I'm in love with you because of what you've done for me. 
That's why I want to live this faithfulness. And we flip it sometimes so easily. Depending on where you come from, it may be very hard. And he says that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So again, there's this picture. Those who have been captured by this, this Jesus, they naturally have died to self and have considered their lives nothing. They consider their lives now his. Um, for him who for their sake has died and was raised. So even great news, the resurrection, glorification, our lives now are supposed to live for his purposes and his grace. So one of the two largest denominations from about 1996, 1998, they quoted, and, and it was very proud of this, um, that, that there were 8 to 10, it may be like 12 to 16, I forget, but like 8 to 10 million people who had made professions, who had been baptized, who had prayed the prayer, right? Walked down the aisle, prayed the prayer. 8 to 10 million. And so over this 15-year time period, at the end of the 15 years, after looking back, go like, hey, we've, got, we've added 10 million. Let's celebrate. Let's high-five each other every year. We have this huge uh, celebration. And we've had 10 million people pray the prayer. We've got the evidence of baptism. They're, they're on church lists. And then went, hold it. There's 10 million people missing from our churches. Those people did a quick prayer, and they weren't in love with Jesus. So we, we don't know what guy, what, what, what pastor, preacher, what his techniques were, what his manipulation, what his, his style was. At the end of 15 years, 8 to 10 million not in churches, not following Christ. So think through what that says. It says, yes, I'll say this quick prayer, but I'm going to live my life my way, my desires my choices, my way, my lifestyle, because I'm covered on the back end. Hey, Jesus, remember that day at the camp? Same thing. Hey, you never loved me. Depart from me. You, you never understood me. You never knew me. I never knew you as a follower who loved me. Paul says that we look at all of life through that lens through that gospel lens, that one has died, and therefore all have died. Think through the difference between a person who's living their life for Christ and a person who is living for self, but who happens to do many Christian things. How does having the cross of Christ right in front of us help strengthen us in killing sin? How does having the cross of Christ in front of us help us and strengthen us to love one another inside the church? Not, not to mention outside the church. If I'm not going to Christ and seeing his compassion and love and truth and grace, if I'm not beholding him, what am I offering to the people out there? What, what do I think sustaining me? This is why you don't hear me harping against uh, liberal agendas and liberal politics and liberal media and, and the LGBTQ, RSTU, XYZ, uh, that's not our problem. It's the problem when, when the whole lot, the whole group is infected with something and when you have the answer, but the people with the answer don't even give a rip about those who are still infected. Who, those who have supposedly the answer, we're not using the answer for our own lives. It's a problem when the fix or the answer to the problem is no longer used or available by the very people who say that they have the answer. 
Those who live no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was resurrected. When Jesus was ascending in Acts 1.8, he said, the Holy Spirit's going to come on you in power. And that word dynamos was not just like, just for these spiritual gifts and these miraculous things to happen, but it's going to be a power. The word there is tied to the proclamation of the gospel, that the powerful thing that's going to happen is you're going to have power to proclaim this, that you're going to be able to say these things, these truths to people, and their lives are going to be changed. He said, you are going to go and be my witnesses. And what he meant, your life is simply going to be about me. Your life is going to be all about me. In America, we get 10 other options in front of that as Christians. In other places, it may mean you lose life, you lose job, you lose family, you lose status, but Christ is worth it. In America, he's lucky to make the top 20. And in America, you can do that. He can be 20th and you still be very respected as a leader in the church. And Paul's going, that's not the way it's supposed to be. Those who live no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was resurrected, your life will be about me in Jerusalem. Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And now here we are in 2022 almost going, we're adventing, we're awaiting you to come again, Jesus. Would you come again? We want to be found faithful to your word, faithful to the gospel for our own lives, faithful to the gospel that we're proclaiming to people, faithful to the gospel in whatever we're doing. That's what we want to be living for. Our life is not our own anymore. So that's what Paul's trying to get the Corinthians to see as he goes into this next section of um, 7, 16 through 21 and then lands on that key verse there in verse 21. So consider that. Are you someone who understands that big backdrop of the fear of the Lord? If you're coming from that, I have to be careful saying that because if you're coming from a place that was a church that was very rigid and very formal or very rules-based, Man, you may need a lot more grace to understand because the fear of the Lord is all you made decisions on. And so the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Just make sure that you're understanding the love of Christ controlling you. Because we, we get really weird and when we, we just, I'm, I'm just living by the fear of the Lord. We need more fear of the Lord. And what people mean by that is usually the practical application. That's where we struggle with that. We especially struggle with that when it comes to interacting with lost people or other believers in a small group even, like, oh, their family doesn't do things like us. Don't talk to them. But we'll be in this small group for three years. That's just weird. We make it weird. So think through fear of the Lord and the love of Christ. Is the love of Christ controlling you? Has it changed you? Is it continually flowing? Because you can't do it on your own. You don't fill up on Sunday and then you know, like go down through the week. It's daily you're needing to turn to him. It's, it's an ongoing process of needing that. And then just ask yourself, are you a person who's understood that, you know, that I'm living my life for the one who died for me? Or you still want to just live this American dream life and just Christianize everything that you do? Put a little sticker on it. Let me pray. 